author of Alpert, the T1 of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly appearance, is our managing editor, the managing editor of Fangraphs, I should say, Dave Cameron. And in what follows, as per usual, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball, or uh, perhaps in the case of this particular episode, Dave Cameron analyzes like 80 to 85% of all baseball because I personally, me, Carson Testuli, hijack the beginning of the conversation with discussion of Cincinnati Reds right-hander, 27-year-old AAA right-hander Todd Redmond and his invisible. However, after forcing Cameron to discuss Todd Redmond and his invisible, I asked Cameron about his article for the electronic pages of Fangraphs on Monday, a piece about Starlin Castro, and the implications of the seven-year and 60-ish million-dollar contract extension the Cubs gave to Castro over the weekend. Moving on from there, we stay in the NL Central, actually. We discuss the 19-inning affair between the Pirates of Pittsburgh and the Cardinals of St. Louis and discuss briefly what this iteration of the Pittsburgh Pirates or how this iteration of the Pittsburgh Pirates differs from last year's version and what their prospects are for playoff contention over the next month and a half. We also look at the dismissal of Houston Astros manager Brad Mills. And I asked Cameron why it took until August of Jeff Lunau's first year with the club to make that decision if, as one might suspect, he was interested in hiring his own manager. It is, in fact, Fangraphs Audio. It does, in fact, feature our managing editor, Dave Cameron. And if you can believe it, it begins right now. Lighter thing, and then some like changeups that are you know, few and far between. So he only really threw like two kinds of pitches. So his fastball was good, and his slider was atrocious, basically. Uh, yeah, I guess that's it. I mean, his his slider definitely got hit for a home run. Um, yeah, what was it? Right, he threw his fastball seventy percent of the time, and it was an above average pitch per per pitch effects. And huh. but. But he still managed to give up um, 70 million runs. He gave up a bunch of runs. Yeah, he gave up four runs in, in three innings. And he walked five guys. And yet, but it, really, his fastball was above average. Well, I wonder if this is like a example where the guy was just so wild that he got swinging strikes because hitters just couldn't, like, it was, you know, so many pitches out of the zone and they just weren't capable of standing there doing nothing. So they swung and missed the pitches maybe they shouldn't have swung at. Right, but I'm telling you, his swinging strike rate in the zone. Right, but maybe he, like, he shocked them by throwing <laughs> them out of the zone, but they were like, oh, God, I don't know what to do. This one's down the middle, and they lunged anyway. Yeah, well, it's curious. I don't think he's going to pitch again immediately, so we won't be able to get any more data on this. Right. Uh, but he may or may not have an invisible. Okay, well, he definitely has a terrible ERA. <laughs> yes, he definitely does have a TR. Actually... By every measure, he has he, yeah, he right. he's allowing a lot of runs. His exit minus is two hundred and twenty-eight. Right. Yeah, That's but that. I was just curious about it because you're not really you don't really throw that many fastballs in the zone and get so many strikes on it if you throw the ball. I mean, what he was like eighty-nine. He set he sits at eighty-nine. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, he sits at 89. So that's that's Todd Redmond. You understand this is the sort of player that I like. Yes, this is exactly the sort of player that you like, and they usually suck. They usually do suck, but 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 he sucks in an interesting way. I guess is the, right. is the yeah. notable thing. Yeah. Right. Um, right. I th- I think you could tell if players are good, but I'm curious about players who have a weird a weird thing that makes them passable. So you're interested in defining mediocrity? Yeah, yeah, I find it. Well, it's it's essentially like a process of self discovery, right? Right. Yeah, because it's yeah. like you want to find the baseball players that are most Stuliac, <laughs> right? Who have somehow survived despite despite mediocrity. Who <laughs> made it this far? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true. It, that's what it is. Yeah. Well, no, because you and I, and we could, this is going to be on the podcast because you and I, well, we did not get into a conversation about this, Cameron, and and I, I maybe I should apologize immediately to our listeners because this will not be specifically analytical, but it does it does um, involve appreciation of baseball. You suggested that if for a person. A person who did not consider Felix Hernandez's perfect game sort of the um, the epitome of what it is to watch and enjoy baseball. If you could not enjoy that, then you don't enjoy the game. Do you? Would you like to rephrase it so that you are being your arguments being characterized? Um, uh, I I think that a lack of enjoyment of a kind of performance that Felix Hernandez threw up last week signifies that you enjoy the game in a way that has nothing to do with aesthetics. So maybe you enjoy the history of the game, or maybe you enjoy uh, the data of the game. But I think if you watch a perfect game, whether it's Felix's or you know Paul Pumbers or Matt Cain's or whoever's, and you can't uh, find appreciation and enjoyment in what they're doing, then the actual on-field performance doesn't matter much to you. All right, and I would suggest that while I think it's I think it's cool that Felix Hernandez did that. And I'm sure that he's happy about it. And it's certainly a lot of people – it made a lot of other people happy, and, and I'm not one – I mean, listen, finding happiness in life is difficult enough. I'm not going to quibble with the means by which anyone finds it. However, I will say that Felix Hernandez's perfect game in the pitching of it is not my favorite type of thing about baseball. And yet I would still suggest that there is a lot about the game that I enjoy. Right. Your favorite thing about baseball is like Michael Fires throwing an 88-mile-an-hour fastball by hitters. I, yeah, that, that yeah, that that that's amusing to me. I guess there's something peculiar about it, about that. Right. About Michael. So you're you're not as interested in greatness as you are in peculiarity. I, yeah, I guess that's probably true. Yeah, people who find uh, players who find um, strange means to the end of you know succeeding at the game. Although, like, there are definitely like, I mean, watching Steven Strasburg pitch, especially on one of the really good cameras. Is still pretty much always pleasant to watch, um, and like watching Craig Kimbrell's slider. I mean, certainly watching Kenley Jansen's cut fastball. I think is one of the great things. Right. I think that there. I mean, certainly not everyone has to enjoy the same thing about baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's fine that you enjoy, you know, curiosities, uh, and that's. I guess the comment that I was making in regards to the guy who wrote the article about not enjoying Felix Fernandez is. There should be something about these on-field things that you enjoy, whether it's Giancarlo Stanton hitting the ball 7,000 miles or uh, someone throwing a perfect game or, you know, Todd Redmond coming up and throwing an invisible ball. Some, some aspect of the sport should appeal to you on a 
hey, neat, I want to watch that one. Right, right. Uh, now, wait, we now we haven't talked since Felix Hernandez threw his perfect game. Uh, yeah. So now the Mariners, are they one-to-one in terms of perfect games this series or this year? Uh, this season, yes. They've been perfect games and they've perfect games. Okay. Uh, I, I think the um, uh, one they were perfect games against uh, probably still weighs a little heavier because it was still a plumber who did it to them and uh, then, you know, subsequently imploded on himself. So uh, their perfect game was probably less impressive than uh, the fact that they got perfect gamed by a really terrible pitcher. Right. Now, Felix Hernandez, after after some early season warning signs, has been very good. And also his um, – because actually the morning of that that game, I, had, I just – I posted uh, in the notes a chart of his um, – with, uh, of his fastball velocity, like by start, and it's gone up by like two miles per hour over the course of the season. Yeah, he's, his fastball's come roaring back. Probably the last month or so, he sat around 91, 93 for a good chunk of the beginning of the year, where he really, I mean, hitting 94 was a rarity for him. Uh, at the end of his last start, the perfect game, he was sitting 96, and regularly. So um, his fastball's definitely returning. Uh, some of that could have been adrenaline from the perfect game. Uh, but his fastball picked up the entire start and was definitely trending upwards. So, um, you know, I think uh, the concerns we had about Felix are pretty much completely gone at this point. He's throwing hard. He's throwing well. Um, there's really no reason to be concerned about Felix Fernandez right now. Yeah, and what I've seen, uh, and this might be of, of some interest to the to the listener, what I've seen is generally fastball velocities over April – are lower and then, but they get pretty stable, and usually like a mile per hour higher or something up until September. Correct. So I think like we see that pitchers uh, as a whole generally throw a little harder at the end of the year than they do at the beginning of the year. Um, that's probably due to weather. We think um, most likely, at least, it seems like pitchers in warm weather can throw a little harder than pitchers in cold weather, whether it's due to getting loose or whatever physical aspect there is. Uh, seems to be some correlation between weather and velocity. Um, but overall, I think pitchers who sustain uh, lower velocity throughout the year show that earlier. So if you're going to lose velocity, it's going to show up by May or June, and you're probably not going to pick it up. It's a little bit unusual to see a guy have velocity down in April, down in May, down in June. Here it is in July. That's a, that's a little awkward. Right, yeah. And so... Uh... I mean, right. I guess there's just so many unknowns at this point, right? Because you say that generally increases in with weather. Although one should note that summer doesn't really begin uh, in the Seattle area until July. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that could be a factor. Is that Seattle? I mean, it's basically been record warm uh, temperatures across the entire country, except for in the Northwest this year, which uh, had an exceptionally cool spring, um, and it certainly didn't get warm. Um, in Seattle until recently, uh, but if you look at the pitching on the road, you know, he was throwing 92, 93 in Texas at times, too, so I think it's one of those things that we just don't really understand. Uh, there are definitely guys whose velocities come and go for reasons that don't appear to be related to injury. Um, you know, why Felix's fastball went away, we don't really know. If it's back, I think that that's uh, only good news for Mariners. So if you were a GM at this point, and, you know, pretending that Felix Hernandez was going to be, or, you know, a pitcher like him, a pitcher who exhibited that sort of velocity spike mid-season. If if you're a GM looking at 
is you know is that you know over the off season this next off season does that change your perception of the guy? I think if his velocity hadn't come back, if he had pitched the whole season at 91-94, you know, maybe it changes it a little bit to the negative, even though the stuff, the performance was still good. I mean, I think you saw with Tim Lincecum, the performance uh, was a little bit of a lagging uh, indicator behind the loss of stuff. His, his velocity had been headed downwards for several years, um, but his, his change-up had maintained excellence. And then this year it looks like it's caught up with him a little bit, but he doesn't throw as hard as he used to. And so... You know, I think if you see pitchers trending downwards and stuff, even when the performance is still good, it's probably a little bit worrisome. Uh, you know, I think Dan Aaron's another example. The guy has been trending downwards in velocity and seems to have caught up with him this year. Um, so, but the fact that he's got it back, I think, you know, at this point you probably just say, hey, this is, I'm going to have whatever the opinion that I had of Coach Fernandez four months ago, I have now. Okay. Now, uh, uh, this is going to, um, we're going to change the subject. But uh, we're going to change it to another thing that's also a current event, uh, and so I guess to that degree, it's uh, it's not changing the subject. But it concerns Sterling Castro, who is now, uh, I mean, he was probably doing fine before, but now he's decidedly wealthy. What did he have? Uh, I mean, six six years, seven years, seven years, sixty million, sixty-ish million. It might end up Rosenthal said it might end up at sixty-five, and then there's a team option for an eighth year that could push it over to eighty. Right. Now, this invites, uh, for better or worse, it invites speculation because, uh, as you note in your piece today, um, Starling Castro is a player who, uh, whose uh, effort has sometimes been in question. Perhaps it's because he's played for terrible teams or generally poor teams. That's one possibility. Uh, what the exact reason is maybe doesn't matter Um I guess you're you're curious as to why uh, the Cubs chose now to extend Starlin Castro. Yeah, I mean, you know, I understand their thought process in saying, hey, look, we have a kid who's held his own, who's been a above-average player through age 22. Historically, these guys turn into really good players. If we wait until after he has his breakout season, it's going to cost us a lot of money. So, um, you know, like last winter, the, the Pirates signed Andrew McCutcheon, to a contract before he had like a monster breakthrough season. He was a, a good player, certainly, but he wasn't doing what he was this year. If they would have waited until after this year to sign him, uh, it would have cost them probably double or triple what they actually ended up paying. So um, I think from the Cubs' perspective, they didn't want to be negotiating against a career year that looked like a breakout at 23 or 24. Um, so they tried to avoid that by locking him up early. I guess my question is, when a guy has motivational questions, has had his work ethic question, that has focused on the field question, and has not really progressed since he got to the big leagues, is that a time to be taking away really your one motivational tool of his future payday and saying, hey, look, now you're set for life. The only thing we can do is, like, plead with you to please play hard. Right. I guess, I guess the thing is that motivation for him – are there, are there, would the Cubs be competitive before um, b- before that it, it, it would make sense to do that, I guess, is my point, right? I mean, are they going to be competitive? Does, do you see what I'm saying? I'm trying to articulate something that, that I apparently has escaped my own, my own grasp. Right. But my you point are articulating is, about as well as Todd Redmond throws a slider. Okay, right. So here's the thing. Um, it, are the Cubs going to be good – before they would have had to re-sign Starling Castro or before they would have had to extend him or would have made well, more sense to extend him? 
Probably not, but I don't think the question is whether or not. I mean, they were going to come in for these years under which they were not competitive anyway. So the question and the calculation from the Cubs' point of view is essentially, if we think we're going to refinance Rollin Castro at some point, uh, does it make sense to wait for him to have that breakout year, give us a little more information, and then pay a much higher premium if we think he's actually going to? So it's the confidence level that he's going to get significantly better in the next two or three years is high, and they think that they're going to want to refine him after he has that kind of year, then they're essentially saying, we expect this to happen, we're going to pay uh, now to avoid the premium that will come with that kind of performance in the future. If they had waited until he was two years from arbitration, uh, he would have been looking at $150 million. I mean, you know, Joey Votto just got $250 million two years away from free agency. Once you reach that superstar level, you get a lot of money in a hurry even if you're not a free agent. So... I think from the Cubs' perspective, they were they're essentially uh, hedging against Castro's breakout, saying, okay, assuming you do have a breakout, we're going to save ourselves a lot of money so that when we are competitive, we don't, we're not paying you, we can go pay other players. Yeah, so here's the question, though. Um, I mean, we know the reasons, sort of uh, the rote reasons why the Cubs would do that, because they're hedging against this possibility that he's going to become a superstar. Um, obviously, uh, Theo Epstein and company are not dumb. So what's a possible like what's a possible thing that they know um, that perhaps we don't? Or or are they just betting on this thing and they just think it's worth it regardless of whether Castro becomes uh, you know mo- more motivated or not? Yeah, I mean I guess that's the thing is we don't really know what the Cubs know, right? So we only know about Charlie Castro's reputation. Uh, from what would have gotten to the media. So when Dale Swain or Mike Quade or somebody got frustrated with him and aired out their frustrations to the media, we've heard about that. But we don't really see what Sterling Castro does every day to work. It looks like his defense is short stuff has improved. Uh, it's very possible that the Cubs have information that, you know, Sterling Castro might be a space cadet, but he actually does work hard or works harder than people think. Um, you know, so maybe they look at it and say, hey, look, this is a guy who we've asked to uh, improve his defense at shortstop. We've asked him to become, uh, a, you know, a slightly different hitter, hit some more power. Uh, he's making adjustments that we've asked him to make. Therefore, we're going to uh, respond to those adjustments, even if we don't see necessarily the performance on the field yet, reward him for that, and that's going to serve as a motivator. Maybe they think he just needs the confidence boost of long-term job security rather than, you know, the carrot of future paydays hanging over his head. Uh, okay, here's another thing that's happening within that division. Um, and that's that uh, the Houston Astros fired Brad Mills, their coach. Um, that seems strange to me only because it was clear from the very beginning of the season that Brad Mills, or I guess the reason why, if it does seem strange, it's because it was clear the Astros were not going to com- uh, contend. So was Mills just basically there to take on a year of uh, futility that would have been assigned to a new coach and maybe given up? some of that new coaches kind of, uh, I guess, the goodwill uh, that a new coach is given? Uh, yeah, I mean, to me, I think the strikes of a guy, uh, Jeff Lunau, a GM, wanting to bring his own guy, which is pretty normal. A GM usually wants to hire his own manager and go through the process and pick a guy who aligns more with his line of thinking. Uh, Brad Mills, he inherited. Uh, and I think there is some value in saying, hey, look, you know, maybe I don't know you that well. I don't want to just fire you just because I'm not the guy who hired you. Uh, so I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to, you know, like, let's play out the year, see if, you know, you, I would have hired you uh, had I known more and kind of 
basically give them a year-long working interview, and uh, it doesn't seem like uh, what Lunau saw led him to believe that Mills would have been the guy he would have selected had he had the choice initially. Um, I think the real question is kind of timing, right? So, like, they did it on a Saturday night uh, in the middle of a series after the team got drubbed, but, I mean, they got drubbed because Lunau traded away every talented player on the roster, essentially. So you can't expect Brad Mills to win with what he's been given. Um so, you know, why do it in the middle of August versus, you know, waiting until the end of the season or at least waiting until an off day? That I can't answer, but I would say it seems like uh, Lou now essentially just wanted to, a chance to pick his own guy, and Mills didn't do anything this season to convince him that he was the guy he should have picked. Uh, so with regard to those Astros, I'm curious as to if, if you could think of any comparable maneuvers as to, the, as to those that uh, Lou now has performed, which is basically... Um, liquidating any kind of talent on the team. I mean, we've seen, uh, you know, we've seen teams in rebuilding modes, but I'm curious as to whether we've seen a team like this so completely devoid of major league talent on its major league team. Right. I don't think this is, like, I don't think the fire sale was of epic proportions. I think the Astros were just starting from a lower base. <laughs> like, the Astros traded away, you know, three or four of their only decent major league veterans. But they only had three or four to begin with. I think when we see most other uh, fire sales, they have some talent around those guys. When you can trade off the veterans and the free agents to be, and you can, you know, make some cost-saving maneuvers, but you can still have some decent players around there. The Astros farm system was so devoid of talent, and their signings were so bad of late uh, that you know Edway basically ruined that franchise. That once Lunau traded away the, you know, the free agents to be and the veterans who were overpaid, there was nothing left, and so. Um, we probably haven't seen a team this bad in a really long time, but I don't know that that's Jeff Lunau's fault. I think that's more Ed Wade's fault. Right. So it was not only that, that the talent at the major league level was probably mediocre. I mean, there were definitely pieces. Michael Bourne has been one of the best players in the majors this year. Hunter Pence was good. There was probably a pitcher somewhere. Wandy Rodriguez was maybe decent. Um, but besides that, there was just like nothing propping that team up from below. Yeah, I mean, the Astros drafted really, really poorly for a very long time, uh, and Wade frittered away any money spent on the free agent market on relievers and, you know, bad baseball players. Uh, the team was just poorly constructed. They didn't develop any international talent. Uh, it was just a really poorly run franchise for a long time, and this is the toll they're taking for mismanagement in previous years. Okay, because, uh, because everyone knows that the NL Central, uh, is the way to draw, uh, page views and listeners, let's stay there. Yesterday, uh, last night, or, well, yesterday and last night, I should say, uh, the Cardinals and Pirates, uh, teams that are, uh, at this point, sort of neck and neck for, uh, playoff contention, at least, um, for that, uh, one of the wild card spots, played a 19 inning game, um, a game which, uh, I happened to notice on, uh, in one of the fan graphs, WPA graphs, or win probability graphs, uh, the Cardinals, uh, offense was worth negative uh, 1.125 um, wins at a certain point. So it was, they essentially lost two and a two and a half games, two and a quarter games by themselves. Um, the uh, the NL Central though is is sort of interesting and it makes the NL interesting generally because the Pirates have not gone away like they did last year. Um, and my question is, are they going to not go away for the rest of the season? 
Yeah, but I think this is one of those things where last year the Pirates lost a 19-9 game. I think it was against the Braves on a terrible call at home plate, uh, and it seemed to not necessarily be the cause of their collapse, but coincided with their second-half collapse. Uh, this year they won a 19-inning game, so it's going to be one of those really easy narratives to write of, you know, hey, both years the Pirates had this super long game. This time the result is different, so therefore it means that the Pirates aren't going to have a collapse. Uh, that narrative is probably more fun than true, but uh, I do think this Pirates team is better than last year's Pirates team. Um, and I'll give a little bit of a spoiler. Bill Petty has an article coming on Fangraphs this week that will suggest that uh, just because their red differential is not as good as St. Louis's, uh, that doesn't actually really mean anything at this point in the year. So I think we probably should uh, um, treat the Pirates as a team that are uh, going to stick around for a while and are not due for impending doom. Um. Yeah, and actually, uh, it once again, I mean, probably more so than last year, they they made some moves at the deadline that seemed to be working out. I mean, Gabby Sanchez is actually seemingly not uh, a bad haul for a deadline trade that uh, that required little of them in terms of what they gave up. Yeah, I mean, I think they uh, you know they had to surrender a first round pick in that deal. It was part of the competitive balance lottery thing that was due to this year. So. Uh, it could turn out that in a few years, if that player turns into a really good pick, then it looks bad that you traded some first-round talent for, for Gabby Sanchez. But right now, I think, you know, the Pirates are definitely in win-now mode. They're trying to get their fans back. They're getting an MVP season for Andrew McCutcheon, and he, he needed help. So they went out and they got Wandy Rodriguez and Gabby Sanchez and Travis Snyder, and, uh, you know, they tried to surround him with some players who could help in the short term, and I think it was the right plan. And, you know, if the Pirates can get to the playoffs, um, and, you know, get the revenue rewards that come with re-energizing your fan base and getting people back at the ballpark and selling more season tickets next year, uh, they're certainly not going to look back and regret giving up a first-round pick. Oh, and, and uh, a side note, uh, it appears as though today Jeff Sullivan of Lookout Landing, uh, formerly of the front page of, um, of SB Nation's uh, Baseball Nation page, uh, is now a Fangraphs writer. That is true. He has uh, come to steal my thunder and uh, and become our everyone's favorite writer, which I'm totally happy to to surrender that title. Not that I was everyone's favorite writer to begin with, but uh, I'm happy to have Jeff overshadow us all yeah. and steal all, all of our thunder and do great work. So I'm curious, and uh, it's possible the listeners are curious, is if that uh, necessarily means what that means for the site. I guess Jeff is going to be writing. It, it seems he's going to be writing two posts today. It looks like. Uh, I'm curious if that's going to change the dynamic of the site. Uh, it is to some degree. I mean, so the main way it's going to change it is we're going to have a fantastic, awesome new writer, which is going to, um, or who is going to produce, you know, regular quality content. So I think uh, readers of Fangraphs can look forward to getting a lot of Jeff Sullivan, uh, maybe too much Jeff Sullivan, depending on what your quota of gifts and uh, volcano jokes is. Um, but I think overall having him is going to be nothing but a net positive. And then it's also going to allow us to change the focus a little bit for some of our other writers because Jeff's going to be able to help cover some of the news um, and some of the breaking stuff throughout the day. So we're going to be able to like maybe narrowly define some roles for uh, some of the other guys on the staff a little bit better and kind of make them uh, cover specific areas a little more in-depth than they have. Um, so I think overall, you know, Jeff's going to provide good content and allow – uh, our writing staff to function a little bit better overall. So, you know, for us, it's definitely a win. Yeah, and uh, I actually contacted Jeff, and he also mentioned that uh, he would not mind participating in the the podcast here so we can have... Uh, yes, 
He mentioned that to me as well. And he will be chatting on Tuesday starting tomorrow. Oh, so, there you go. Starting uh, tomorrow. Anyone who wants to go hang out with Jeff and make volcano jokes and uh, laugh at What are these volcano jokes? What is this? Uh, so Jeff is like a really big science nerd and loves volcanoes. And uh, so he hikes them and reads about them and researches them and knows how to pronounce their Icelandic names. Uh, so if you ever want to discuss volcanoes, Jeff Sullivan is your man. That sounds precisely like the sort of thing that a young child with Asperger's syndrome would be doing. Yes, I think that there's a really strong chance that you just accurately described why Jeff is funny. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, but, but perhaps not even knowing it. That's the sort of other thing there. Right. Yeah, stumbling into it. Well, good. I mean, it's uh, yes, he's a strong writer, and uh, it'll be uh, it'll be good for our site. Uh, applause. The applause goes round. Uh, the entire internet, uh, especially uh, us other writers uh, from Fangraphs. So, uh, yeah, that's it. Dave, do you have anything to add that I've uh, sadly neglected from this edition? Of, uh, yeah. uh, I don't know. Are there any other terrible writers that you're fond of who debuted this weekend? Uh, no, Todd Redmond was bad, was about it. Uh, yeah. I don't know if we captured the audio at the beginning, but I, I will. I am... Uh, be and am about to be writing about Todd Redmond for today. So. Yeah, well, that was, I look forward to the Todd Redmond post. Yeah, it might actually just be like ten words. Yeah, he was awful. Here's why. Yeah, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. This is the end. This is the end of the podcast. Anyway, Cameron, uh, thank you for thank you for joining us for your weekly Yeah, that's Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Testuli. This has been the Todd Redmond edition of Handgraphs Audio. Okay. <laughs>